Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Today, I'm super excited to have Feng Ru Lin join us. Feng Ru is the co-founder of Turtle Tree, a cell-based milk company here in Singapore. The first product she's working on is actually selling cell-based human breast milk, not just to infants, but also to adult humans. So how did she get started with all of this? It actually all started with her love for cheese that really led her to look for good quality milk here in Asia. When she wasn't able to find it, she decided, why not make it myself? But how did she end up on cell-based milk, you might ask? It was actually through a chance encounter. She was attending a talk about cell-based foods where she met her co-founder, Max, and together they started Turtle Tree. What I find most fascinating about all of this is actually Feng Ru did not come from a science background. She didn't study science in school, and she actually spent most of her career in sales roles in tech, first at Salesforce and then at Google. So how does she go from that to starting her own cell-based milk company? I'll hand over to Feng Ru now to tell her story. I know that you were born and raised in Singapore uh, and you went to school in Singapore. I wanted to ask, when you were graduating from university, what were your thoughts on your career? I, I would say I just needed to get a job. As with every new graduate, you wanted to find a job that allows you to travel, that allows you enough freedom. So when I, when I graduated, before I graduated, I was quite fortunate to have gotten a job from a Dutch company. And uh, it was uh, selling a lot of testing and certification services to banks. So that was a great experience and really honed my sales and business development skills. Got it. Got it. And after that, I know that you kind of moved on into this tech space. You joined Salesforce and, and Google. Kind of walk us through that decision. What made you decide to move uh, into the tech space? That was probably back in 2013, 2014. Tech was just booming. And Salesforce obviously has a really good branding. When I heard of a, an opening, I was really excited to, to be able to get the opportunity to join such a great company. I started as a business development rep and the skills that I learned from day one, I still use it today. Skills like learning how to reach out to people on LinkedIn, skills like how to engage executives, what they would be looking out for when you pitch to them. I think uh, these are really valuable skills that I use today as well. In what we're doing here at Turtle Tree, I, I do a lot of engagements and reaching out to people who might not know us. And the, the, skills that I've picked up has opened so many doors for us from Salesforce. I was in sales for a long time and then to Google. It was fun. Google is a massive company. It's like a well-oiled machine. And naturally in a big corporate environment, everyone does one thing and one thing really well. So you are quite the expert in your area of focus. But when it comes to reaching out on a wider range of different business units, I wanted to learn how to engage across different parts of the business. So when the opportunity came around to start this business at Turtle Tree, I was quite excited. I totally feel what you were feeling back then. I also came from like a very big corporate, very well-run mm -hmm. machine where you really do feel like you're just doing one little part of this massive thing. So yeah, it totally makes sense that you were thinking about pursuing something where you get a bit more ownership and autonomy over the whole project rather than just one little part of a super massive company. I wanted to hear a little bit more about this entrepreneurial bug that you might have had. Did you always consider being an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. So um, never wanted to be an entrepreneur. The whole thing started when a few years ago, I was learning how to make cheese as a hobby. I was quite a fanatic. I even went up to Vermont, upstate New York, for a few weeks to learn how to make cheese. It was a really fun experience and it got a little bit scientific as well. How much acid, how much rennet do you add into the milk to make it form curds? Um, why wouldn't it form? So all these different decisions and the close engagement and knowledge about the milk got me to recognize um, how complex milk is, right? You start off the same fluid, but the amount of acid, the amount of water, the amount of uh, different things that you add into that same fluid 
all this result in so many different types of cheeses. And that was really fascinating for me. And I grew to appreciate milk and its complexity. And I wanted to replicate this whole process back in Asia. So obviously there are no cows in Singapore. So I went up to Indonesia to look for raw, fresh milk because the milk cannot be pasteurized. It cannot be homogenized, which is what the milk that we get in the stores are. In Indonesia, the cows don't get to walk around, so they, they don't get to exercise. Uh, it wasn't the, the best uh, health, healthy environment for them. So um, I, of course, I tested the milk as well. Um, the milk couldn't form curds properly, lack of calcium and so on. Um, and, and this could be an isolated um, incident. I, I would say it's not the case for every farm that is there, but there's certainly a, a large number of farms that don't have the best um, conditions for the, the animals. I needed a large amount of milk to be able to make my cheese. So I wanted to access a sauce uh, that was quite reliable and a good quality. So I gave up that whole cheese idea. Not to mention Asia is not the best place to age um, the soft cheeses that I love. So I, that was when I, I was still working for Google back then uh, and um, gave up that idea. And I think one day I was in my office and we run lots of events. That was when I met Max, my co-founder. He was the CEO of a different tech company back then. And he was on stage sharing about cell-based meat companies. So talking about Memphis Meats and Blue Nalu, this is like three, four years ago. These companies are companies that are able to produce meat without going through the animal. This is not plant-based meat. It's actually growing um, a small sample of cells to a large enough number and then pressing these cells to a patty and eating it like a, as a burger. So it blew my mind on how you can get all these uh, different types of meats without going through the animal. So after the talk, we started chatting about my, my milk challenges and brainstorming different methods that um, we could possibly adopt. Max has some connections, some scientist friends, and we started to discuss using similar cell-based methods to make milk. Okay, so then you decided to move on from the cheesemaking idea because you couldn't find like the quality of milk that you were looking for in Asia. Um, and then you... I guess, very luckily met uh, your co-founder at an event in Google where he was invited to speak on cell-based uh, meat. How did you guys get started? So when I first I chatted with him, he was like, yeah, actually there is a lot of cell-based meat companies, but nobody else was doing, was making milk. Um, there were other companies making milk through other methods. So how they do it is, if you look at milk, is 2,000 different components. They are looking to synthesize the the milk component by component. But uh, I, I know from my cheese experience that in order to make a good cheese, you need to access all the different components in milk. It's difficult to, to put different parts together to, to make it into a whole milk. And if you look at the dairy industry today, $700 billion, most of that um, value is out of this high value milk byproducts like cheese, butter, yogurt, cream, and just synthesizing single components wouldn't allow us to access this high value market. So we knew we needed to, to have a more novel way um, of producing the milk. And uh, believe it or not, Max is not a scientist, but he was actually the one who came up with the idea that perhaps we can use the cells as biofactories that are producing all 2,000 components in milk. It would be the same process as what happens in a cow udder or a human, but we just take it out of the animal and putting it in a bioreactor to produce all these different um, ingredients in milk. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. So let me just try to recap this. A lot of other companies out there who are trying mm -hmm. to produce one aspect of the milk. And mm -hmm. if you just reproduce that one aspect of the milk, what do you get? Casein and whey. Okay. And with casein and whey, I guess like, it, is that considered milk or so, what, what do they do with that then? So if you look at protein bars, protein muscle shakes, and lots of different products actually in a regular pantry would have different milk components in it. And instead of accessing these components from the cow, they want to be able to get it from other methods. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge with that is if you look at casein and whey and bovine products, it's part of the commodities market. So it's difficult to reach price point. For example, 
whey is at 80 cents a kg and we all know milk is two dollars a gallon at this kind of pricing it's difficult to be able to reach price point and the positive uh, of, of this method is it's you can produce these components without going through the animal so it's sustainable it's animal cruelty free but when it comes to commercial viability price point is still a big factor for a lot of food companies Okay. And is that why you guys decided to move towards reproducing all 2,000 components of the milk as opposed to one or two components of it? Yes, that's right. Um, even even all 2,000 components, if we're looking at cow milk, it's at $2 a gallon. There is still a lot of R&D that needs to be done before we can get that price point down. So our method is able to produce milk from all mammals, uh, which is why in this next uh, two to three years, we are focused on producing ingredients in human milk, not not just bovine. We, we are still running the, the bovine R&D in parallel, but uh, in the early days, things like human bioactive proteins, um, complex sugars, um, milk fats, these are actually designed by nature for humans, right? I mean, we, we were born um, to to consume these and molecular and the molecular structure would be very biosimilar to, to what comes out of the human. It's important to unlock certain functionalities, for example, better immunity, better gut health, better brain development, and so on. So we, we are focused on these areas. From a business perspective, that ties back into the commercial aspect, right? Because then exactly. you're not comparing against like cow milk where you have to lower your price to like $2 a gallon for human milk. You probably have a lot more room in terms of your price point to, to cover your cost. Oh, that's, exactly. that's super exciting and honestly so cool that you are trying to reproduce human milk via like a cell-based method. But I do want to understand how it really started at the beginning, right? So you and Max both didn't come from a science background. You know, you chatted after this event how did you guys keep in touch? Was he based in the US or based in Singapore? So he was uh, flying back and forth uh, between US and Singapore a lot. So we just kept chatting. Both of us have a lot of natural curiosity. And it was like running down the rabbit hole, solving different parts of the puzzle. And I think the, the most resounding thing was when we bounced off this idea to scientists. Most of them said one of two things. Wow, I've never thought of that. But this is plausible. Or it's, I've thought of that, but I just never executed on it. So talking to them gave us the um, confidence that this can be done. And also we started to do a lot of reading, uh, a lot of research on our own. And if you look at the cell-based meat industry, a lot of the technologies are actually brought over from the pharma industry. Because we're making cell-based meat, it's about tissue engineering. So when we're talking about tissue engineering in the past, a lot of research was done for medical reasons, right? To, to be able to help burn victims or reduce scarring and to build tissue or muscle for people who lost limbs and so on. So the, a lot of the technologies are brought in from there. So when Max and I were brainstorming, we did a lot of research on the pharma industry, on how we can translate that to produce milk. When you grow the cells in the past, the cells would require this thing called FBS to be able to grow into a large number and then press into patty and eating it. So FBS is actually fetal bovine serum, basically the blood of a baby cow in a pregnant cow's womb. That's how they, they get the FBS. And throughout history, when you need to grow cells, we are always using FBS. But if it's for vaccine, the volume that you use is actually really small. And you probably just need one dose or two dose of the vaccine for anyone for a very long time. But when it comes to food, we are eating food every single day. We eat so much food. So if we were to grow the cells using fetal bovine serum, we would need to access a lot of fetal bovine serum. So the, the whole cell-based meat industry needs to think of a whole novel new method to, to replace the fetal bovine serum. So why is fetal bovine serum so so difficult to replicate. It's because it's blood. I mean, even today, we, we need to donate blood for blood transfusions. Why can't we synthesize blood? Well, it's because it's so complex. Blood is one of the most complex fluids out there. And the scientists have been able to identify a large number of the different components in FBS, but not all of them. So what the cell-based meat companies are trying to do 
is find out the top 18 to 25 components inside the fetal bovine serum and synthesizing each of them. And that is what Turtle Tree has been doing since day one as well. And the 18 to 25 different components, uh, these are things called growth factors. So recently we, we launched Turtle Tree Scientific that is able to produce a lot of these growth factors at a very low cost. When we look at how all these different biologics is being produced, we recognize that actually the memory cell, the breast cells, it's also another system on its own. It's like a little biofactory that can produce the, the complex uh, fluid that is milk. And, and that was the, the method that we decided to, to adopt. So, <laughs> this is super interesting. What you guys were trying to do, is it to reproduce the breast cells so that then once you've created that system of breast cells, then it could produce milk off of that? Is that yes, the concept? Yes, Okay, okay, okay. Yes. <laughs> so we, let me walk you through the process. There are actually live cells in freshly expressed milk. It could be cow milk or human milk. So our scientists have been able to extract the cells. We, we had a massive donation drive two years ago when mothers came in and donated their freshly expressed milk. And after we, we extract the cells, these cells can um, multiply in FBS to a large number. And then it becomes like a massive little biofactory that produces the milk. So we get cells from the, from the freshly expressed milk and, and then we, we don't take the breast milk anymore. So from this memory cells, this breast cells, we use the FBS replacement to grow them to a large number. And then the cells will be put in a lactation media, which is different hormones, different minerals, vitamins, that the cells would then consume and then convert into milk. Mm. So the cells actually convert the lactation media into milk. And this process is identical to what happens inside a human breast. I see, I see, I see. Okay. So yeah, we went on quite a scientific explanation of this, which is very insightful. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for sharing all of this. But how did you learn all of this? Like, <laughs> you, you didn't come from like a biology kind of background. How did you, I guess, figure all of this out? And also, how did you find all the scientists? Was it really like just cold emailing people on LinkedIn? Kind of walk us through how you got yourself up to speed to, to start something sure. so so scientific. <laughs> <laughs> sure. It was a lot of natural curiosity. And like I said, running down the rabbit hole, talking to people, it's about getting a deep enough understanding, but having a wide understanding, which was important. So for us, we were quite fortunate. We have a team of extremely great scientists so they, they coach us a lot on the concepts. We also talk to a lot of collaborators, a lot of different researchers, and triangulating information from these different sources really help us to, to build a lot more knowledge. And also, there are some groups that are out there, people like the Good Food Institute, who publishes a lot of papers around cell-based meat and also the alternative protein industry. I learned a lot studying all of these papers I would read it a few times to make sure I, I absorb all the data. And it's it's really just natural curiosity. You need to solve a problem. And you need to read enough to unlock that problem. And I think we're just really fortunate that in today's world, we've got LinkedIn, uh, we've got the internet. We can talk to practically anyone and just reach out. And the scientists are usually really happy to have a chat. When it comes to hiring out for scientists, Max had some um, friends who are in that industry so through warm introductions we hired and worked together with some of the early scientists and when it comes to learning when it comes to engaging with people it's about being really open for us we talk to everybody and anyone and try to learn from them we, we spend a lot of time on the phone talking to to the, the different folks even if somebody's from a different industry uh, or have a different area of study, it is also quite beneficial for us. I guess, especially with this biotech um, space, we also have engineers, we also have people from the food science industry. So it, it's about connecting the dots and being quite open. So I, I have this saying, I think uh, <laughs> there is like 7 billion people on the planet, right? Another tree coming onto the planet. If there is a problem to be solved, somebody would have been trying to solve it for the past 25 years or, or their whole career. So if you start to ground from ground zero, it absolutely would not make sense at all. So at Turtle Tree, we work on a very open innovation strategy. 
we try to find the best out there and, and bring them on board and learn from them, which is why uh, Max and I, although we're not the scientists, but we are super open. And I think that also helped the, the scientists to open up and, and trust us as well, because us not having any preconceived notion about the kind of work that they are doing allowed them to share a lot freer and they there is no <laughs> there is no competition among like the scientists and us because obviously we don't know much <laughs> so they are, they are quite quite open to sharing but when it comes to scientists scientists sometimes uh, they can be a little competitive or they might be shy to admit that they they might not know certain things but for us we just want to connect the dots we want to learn from different industries and plugging them into into our ecosystem here so do you actually feel like not having that science background almost helps with the team dynamics a little bit, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And this was not an easy thing to showcase. In, in our early days, I think that even when we're talking to investors, one of the investors uh, even told us, we will invest in your company if um, you guys hire a Nobel laureate onto your company. So that, that was quite not respectful. We do have good scientists. There are very few Nobel laureates out there, especially in the in the area of study that, that we are in. But over time, I've uh, been really fortunate to be surrounded by people we can learn from. And us being not being scientists and having none of that preconceived notion really, really helped us to talk to different types of people. And was it hard convincing the first scientist to come on board, especially when it was just nothing but an idea at that point, right? How, how did you guys convince that person to come on board? So in, in the early days, when we first started, Max and I put in half a million dollars of our, our own money so we could hire that scientist. And it's really about storytelling. I mean, learning a lot from my time in Salesforce. They're not just selling CRM, right? They are selling customer success. So for us, we're not selling milk. We are selling sustainability. We are selling anti-animal cruelty. We are protecting and nourishing the planet, the people. So it's about building this vision of the company. And scientists these days, they, they don't work for money. They, they really want to work on something they can be proud of. A lot of my scientists, I'm we're quite proud to say recently, some of them even started taking MBA classes at night because they, they have been learning a lot on the business side from, from our business team. So they too want to have a view on how a business um, is run, just like how we are learning from them. So th this environment, we are really fortunate to, to be being able to build this. And are your scientists mostly based in Singapore or in the US? Most of uh, our core team is based in Singapore, but we do have a lot of collaborations in the US, in Europe, because that is where a lot of knowledge is built. There is a lot of Southeast meat companies based out of especially the Bay Area. And naturally, there is a lot of talent there, a lot of know-how there. Mm, okay. So I know you mentioned in passing as like a nonchalant comment, but I do want to highlight that you did put in half a million dollars, hired this engineer. I mean, that's a substantial amount of money to, to put in <laughs> an idea. At that point in time, how far along were you with, with this idea? And were you still working at Google like, and working on this on the side or you had already quit your job? So I'm not the one doing the lab work. It was uh, mostly my scientists doing it. I was still working for Google then. It was only when we were quite confident that we have a path to execution. That's when I, I quit my job. So I think in the early days, it was a lot of R&D, a lot of thinking, and that was mostly done by the, the scientists. For us, uh, <laughs> we, we have a joke within the company. Max and I are like the, the mouse that goes out to catch the, the, the rat. So we'll bring the rat to our scientists and ask them if uh, this is what they want. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, a, it's still a very important job. <laughs> crucial, <laughs> crucial to have. Do not downplay. <laughs> Do not downplay. Um, okay, so, yeah. so you had hired a scientist, I guess, like, like just one, one single person who was working on this at the beginning or you very no, quickly we had, hired we had a team? Five. Okay. We had five. Um, so two molecular biologists. Three are um, cell biologists. So the cell biologists are the ones who work on the cells, do the cell engineering, getting the cells to lactate. The molecular biology team is the team who is building the FBS replacement. We knew from day one that that was extremely important. So we made sure that we had two of these teams plugged in. Mm. 
Mm. And this was, I guess, a business decision, right? Like this was something that you yes. and Max like learned through your own research and then you decided this is the way you wanted to structure it. And then you kind of let, let the scientists do their thing, but you kind of set the overarching structure of this. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, so it was like a team of five that was starting at the beginning. When did you feel ready to leave your job? Well, we, we needed to do a lot of research around whether or not we have a, a clear path for the patent filing. And so, so our patent lawyers are actually Wilson Sonsini out of the Bay Area, and they are the same folks behind Impossible. We knew that that is the biggest asset for Turtle Tree, so we wanted to to go get the best lawyers for that. So once we knew that the, the patents are pretty all right, that was when I left my job. Mm, okay. And was Max also working on his prior company at that point in time? He's kind of left his previous company already. So uh, he was just traveling and giving different talks. So he was quite, quite ready to, to make the switch as well. Mm, okay. So timing worked out really well. Yeah. Cool. And perfect. so you guys filed this patent and I know that you guys also mm-hmm. uh, applied to some competitions, right? In Singapore. Maybe tell us mm-hmm. a bit more about that as well. Sure. So last year, it was COVID year. So we were quite fortunate that the competitions went on, even though it, it was uh, all on Zoom. So the first major competition that we won was the Tomasic Livability Challenge. Uh, that is run by the Tomasic Foundation, and they have been so supportive since then. There was a, a million dollars um, of undiluted funding that really helped to accelerate our, our work. And we also won the Entrepreneurship World Cup. That was completely unexpected. We just didn't think that we would win because it was a global competition out of 175,000 startups. Wow. But congratulations, though. That is a huge feat to be able to beat out 175,000 other people in this competition. When you guys were applying to competitions, were you guys doing it because you were thinking, oh, I need to fundraise to continue to keep the business going? Or was it I needed to get some sort of credibility so that it would be easier for us to sell the product later on? What was the drive towards like entering into these competitions? It, it was all of that. And really, if you look at the evolution of a startup, these competitions usually have a, a lifespan. And you can't do it if you're too mature in, in the startup and you can't do it if it's too early in the startup. So last year was uh, the sweet spot for us and we knew that we needed to build credibility. The funds were really nice and the support from these two organizations have been incredible. So Tomasic, in, being in Singapore, they really help us to open a lot of doors to other government organizations and other industries. For the Entrepreneurship World Cup, they really put us on the map globally. So because of these two competitions, we have so much interest from investors, from corporates, from government organizations reaching out. And it's not easy to get these opportunities. We have been so fortunate and it's been good. And of course, the the news um, articles that that came out because of these really helped propel us onto the world stage. What do you think made you guys win these competitions? What was it about you guys? I think it was the storytelling. So our team put together the the storytelling after a lot of refinement, talking to mentors. And the the gist of it is to not talk too much. It's it's a three-minute pitch, right? And to condense everything into three minutes is the hardest thing. It's like so far we've spoken for one hour plus and we're just skimming the surface of, yeah. of what Turtle Tree does. <laughs> so try try doing that in three minutes. I think for us is really the, the team being able to just talk about what matters, what matters to the audience and what matters to the competition and what matters to Turtle Tree. I think to bring out the salient points was the most important thing. Got it. And do you feel like the idea itself also helped? That it was something that was like so novel and kind of on trend as well. A lot of conversations now are around food tech and I guess like a plant-based meat right now is like all the rage with Impossible and Beyond. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you guys kind of like jumped onto this trend at the right time as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about timing. Our, Our solution, it's really about food security. And with COVID, we all know that food security is one of the biggest challenges in the world today. So it was the idea, it was on trend, and nobody else was doing that as well. We are the first company to be doing this. 
I think a lot of people do not realize, but dairy is the largest food segment in the world. It's $700 billion. I think uh, beef is $300 billion. Poultry is a little lesser than that. So the impact is it's massive. And this is why we're doing what, what we're doing. And I'm glad we could um, bring that story across. Okay, so in your first year, you were very much focused on like getting the patent going. In that first year, did you need to fundraise or it was really mostly out of you and Max's own pocket at that point in time? Yeah, so after we filed our patent, so we got more comfortable with the project. That was when we went out to fundraise. So I think uh, we were so fortunate. We even have uh, Prince Khaled, who's one of our earliest first investors together with Lever VC. For Lever VC, they reached out because they heard about us. For Prince Khaled, we were connected to him through one of our advisors from the Bay Area. He's very active in uh, investment in uh, this, the cell egg industry. So he's also invested in Memphis Meats and Blue Nalu. So we were really excited to share the same investors as, as these giants. And, and, and he's a vegan, so he's a great ambassador in this space. That's awesome. And so fundraising, it sounds like it wasn't too terrible for you guys to go no, out to fundraise. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it, was, it was too hard. <laughs> it's still a lot of work. We, okay. we talked to so many people. So I think I did a count recently. So far, we have spoken to 230 investors. We speak to an individual angel the, the, the same way as we speak to a large investor because uh, it's about building the network and it's about building the community. And you can imagine 230 investors would mean thousands of conversations. It was, it was very hard work. I wouldn't say that was easy. I'm completely downplaying all the work that went into this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but any advice for people who are thinking about fundraising their own startup since you've been through this whole process already? Sure. So I think it's about improving the pitch. So from our team, when we talk to investors, every conversation helps us to build a better pitch. So I guess talking, getting the feedback from the investors is very important and refining it. And I think reaching out to different investors, that's the first step, right? It's about building a good network. So for us, I think after the first six months or so fundraising, we we were quite fortunate because we have investors who would say, maybe it's not the right time for me. I'm a later stage investor, but I know somebody who could be a good investor for you guys. So this allows us to be connected with the extended network. And we don't have to do as much um, outreach on our own after that because we got introduced to a lot of good investors following that. That's always helpful when you get like a warm introduction instead of just cold emailing someone mm-hmm. knocking on their door, trying to get them to give you money. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Okay. So kind of moving back towards your business, how's the product coming along? Do you guys have mm-hmm. a product now? Kind of talk us through, you know, what the product is for you guys right now. Mm-hmm. Sure. So as I mentioned, because of price point, and because of the feedback from the big dairy companies, they said, well, making cow milk is great, but if you can make human milk, it's even better because human milk has a lot of functional benefits that are not just good for babies, but also good for adults. So human lactoferrin, for example, is known to be good for iron binding. So it helps with your immunity. It has antimicrobial effects. It's better for your gut and, and the same with complex sugars found in human milk. So in our early days, we will be producing certain milk blends. So these are blends of human milk ingredients that are better for you, better for your gut, better for immunity. And uh, these include certain bioactive proteins, complex sugars, and fats. And we, we call this the Turtle Tree One blend. And a Turtle Tree One blend can be added into, say, a Danon cup of yogurt, um, or an ice cream from Nestle and so on to, to give it additional benefits. So it's not just good for babies, but also good for adults. And in the infant nutrition space, it's also about closing the gap between infant nutrition and human milk. Because infant nutrition today is made up of bovine powder, vegetable extracts, and lots of different things that make it more human-like. For us, uh, we're just replacing ingredient by ingredient. Instead of using bovine powder, um, casein or whey, we use human casein or whey or lactoferrin 
And this helps to close the gap to make it better for the baby's digestion and so on. So in the first two years or so, it would be these blends that are naturally found in human milk. It will be focused on adult nutrition, specialized nutrition. And in the next two years, it would be also introducing this to infant nutrition. But to introduce any new ingredient in infant nutrition takes a few years just because they're so stringent. And rightly so, because we're feeding this to babies. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done before they would be in, on shelves of uh, infant nutrition. So in the early days, uh, it would be focused on adult nutrition, specialized nutrition, and so on. That's very interesting. So just to recap, your product now is cell-based human milk that you guys are trying to create. And you guys are thinking two routes with this. One is to replace milk powder, and the other one is to sell to adult humans and market it as milk plus. Which this concept, when I first, when you first told me about this, I was like, wow, that is so interesting. And I wonder what people's reaction would be like when you tell them you're doing this. Have you done work around this to see how people react to, to this idea? So we've done a, a number of focus groups talking to people. And I think the two most important things to the public is really number one is safety, obviously. But I think for us, as long as we can pass Singapore Food Agency's regulatory hurdles, that the safety would be passed. And the second one would be taste. To young people, even if the, the taste is the most important thing, and we are working to be able to build a product that is good tasting and also fits the lifestyle of certain consumer groups. So all of this, uh, we, we are working with our marketing, with uh, the flavors and fragrances companies, and our dairy collaborators as well. When you first told me about this, I was like, oh, I don't think if I just saw a bottle of milk in the supermarket and it was like oh this is human milk and it like highlights all the benefits you get from it I think I would still be quite weirded out by this concept right because I was like I understand like cow milk sheep's milk oat milk almond milk I think the human milk part I would personally be quite thrown off but I think that's also why this is quite exciting right because I'm sure when people first heard about oat milk or almond milk they were probably also like Ew, like what is mm -hmm. that? And so I think a lot of it is really just around like education, marketing and branding and seeing how you can take this to uh, the next level. Do you guys have any exactly. early thoughts around how you sure. guys are thinking of marketing this to a uh, more everyday consumer and kind of getting through these mental hurdles that people might have? Sure. So when it comes to these challenges, right, if you think about it, if um, say 15 years ago, I asked you to get into a stranger's car or get you to go into a stranger's home. You would never do that. But we do that every day now, right? So it's about educating the people, getting them to understand what this is about. And for us, we are going to talk about the benefits of these different ingredients. Why is Turtle Tree 1 better for you? And these days, there is a big trend to look for better for you food products. Say, say a drink, right? That is sparky. You want it to be a kombucha because you, you know it's better for your gut. It helps with your digestion. I take a lot of supplements because I believe that these things can help improve my immunity. So people are looking out for better functional products. And it's about delivering the right message that reaches out to different consumer groups. So for example, if you have, say, a bodybuilder or a sports person, and uh, he's looking for a thirst quencher. We, we can also include a lot of the Turtle Tree One blends into certain sports drinks. So it has additional benefits to this individual. And, and what speaks out to the sports person would be very different to what speaks out to, say, an older person, a, a senior, who is looking for a product uh, that helps him with his irritable bowel syndrome. And we can have yogurt products with certain complex sugars that helps with uh, this IBS problems. So yeah, it's about understanding each segment and putting out products that, that uh, cater to these segments. Who do you think will be the early adopters for your, your product? It would probably be two to three main groups. Senior care is definitely one of them. But I think for the older folks, when it comes to digestion and, and gut problems, they are on the lookout for better for their gut products. Another one is sports people, obviously, and also the young folks. I think the, the younger generation are really the ones who are choosing the food that goes inside the fridge of the family. And being exposed to climate change, being educated around the harm that the previous generations 
has unfortunately caused because of industrialization, because of factory farming and so on, they are choosing more and more to to plant-based milk and cruelty-free milk. But when it comes to nutritional profiles, plant-based milks still can do more. So we we are also looking to work together with plant-based milk companies to increase the nutritional profile of their products. That leads nicely to like my next question, which is comparing plant-based milk with cell-based milk, because these are both mm-hmm. milk alternatives. What would you say is the main difference between these? And why is it that we've seen the plant-based market grow so much more than the cell-based market so far? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the cell-based milk market, it's quite new. I mean, we are the first company and we are very much ahead in R&D, but it's still a few months away uh, from launch. Whereas the plant-based milk has been around since the start of time. I mean, we grew up drinking soy soy milk and after that almond milk, cashew milk and so on. The biggest difference would be the functionality. So what do I mean by that? Plant-based milks are great for fluid drinking milk, right? You can add it to your coffee, you can drink it on its own. But the fluid milk market is actually a very small percentage of the $700 billion dairy industry. Much of that $700 billion industry is made up of the cream, butter, cheese, yogurt. And these are only accessible through real milk, real cow milk, right? You do have plant-based cheeses, but they taste more like a nut spread. You can't really stretch it. You can't make mozzarella out of it. So that, that is one of the biggest differences. And as much as people are adopting plant-based milk, it still takes up less than 3% of the dairy market. It's actually really, really small. And most of it is it's really still the high value dairy byproducts. Mm, okay. And do you see yourself going into the space of cheeses again in the future? Um, and maybe yes. even like lactose-free <laughs> milk? I think that's one of the things where I know a lot of friends who are intolerant to lactose and they mm-hmm. are always so sad that they cannot have like the ice cream or, you know, cheese. Is that something that you guys will think about moving into as well? Mm-hmm. Sure. So when it comes to lactose-free milk, there are some products on the market. What they do is they introduce lactase, uh, which is an enzyme to digest lactose. So the milk comes out with no lactose. These are more downstream processes to help remove the lactose. For us, definitely something we can work on and we are working on is removing lactose right from the upstream. We, we can engineer the cells to produce no lactose at all. So there is less downstream processing required. So yeah, definitely something that we're working on. I know we're kind of running into time. So just moving on to some more personal questions for you. I guess for you growing up in Asia, did you ever have to struggle between following like a very traditional corporate career versus going out to start your own business? Was that a difficult decision for you to kind of leave like a very stable, you know, Working at Google is kind of everyone's dream. Was it a difficult decision to move from that towards starting your own company? Well, my mom was really stressed out at first, but she just made sure to check with me that I could pay my bills. I'm not going to sleep on the streets. And after that, she's, she's fine. And I guess being from the tech world, for me, the, the industry is still there. And it's something that I can always go back to. But for this opportunity, the timing was so good. It was an opportunity I could not say no to. It was more the door after door that opened that gave me the confidence. Uh, And when it came to that point, it was no looking back already. And there was no way that I could not not leave the job. (laughs) So I, I would not have forgiven myself if I left that opportunity on the table. And how did you think through that financial decision for yourself? Like leaving a job to go start your own company, which you're not getting paid or because mm-hmm. one of the hardest things that's keeping people from leaving their corporate job is just the lack of financial security. I guess it's really six months liquidity, right? For my expenses, for everything that I have, I got to make sure that I have six months in a bank. If I'm down to six months, I need to find a job. So <laughs> that was my, my rule of thumb, my Singaporean prudent way of thinking that that came in. <laughs> and I guess being Singapore, I'm quite fortunate. I've always got my family to fall back on. <laughs> I know I sound like a spoiled uh, person, but that, that was uh, just that safety net that I have. And my parents, they are quite independent. My sister is independent. 
So I got this opportunity to work on this, stepping out to do this. So was it like, if I do end up blowing through my savings, the last straw is, okay, if I've still got six months left, then like I'm going back to my job. That's exactly. quite, quite quite a good way of thinking about it because then it's like setting de- deadlines and kind of milestones that are non-emotional mm-hmm. for you to make a decision on. Um, yeah. And I guess... It's kind of crazy, like how much you've accomplished in in the past two years. For someone who's, you know, where you were at Google back then, thinking about starting their Mm -hmm. own business, what advice would you give them? And what did you wish you knew at that point two years ago? So the first is talk to as many people as possible, bounce off ideas. So when I first started, it's about talking to people from the dairy industry, investors, people from the cell-based meat industry people from the sustainability industry, people who are vegans. So talking to all these people really help. And this is such a new industry. Everyone is really warm and willing to chat with you. What was your excuse to talk to them? Like, How did you phrase it? If somebody is running a VC a mission fund in, in, say, the US, I would say, hey, congratulations on your latest race for blah, blah, blah. I'd love to get connected with you. So keep it short. I wouldn't do like long sentences, just a little bit of a compliment or highlight on what you know about them. And I'll love to connect with you. And once they connect, I'll say, hey, great job on doing this and that. My name is Feng Ru, and I would love to have a chat with you about some ideas. Would you be open next week to a quick chat? So I think all of this phrasing and all of this sentencing is, again, through my, through my Salesforce days, Google days, <laughs> and also working it out with Max. He's American and he's really casual. And <laughs> in the early days, I used to write like Jane Austen because I'm Singaporean and everything is so <laughs> structured and formal. <laughs> but I, I learned um, through time the, the, the best way to, to talk to people and reach out to people. So I, I do spend myself a, a few hours every Saturday talking to new founders or people who want to join the industry or people who want to bounce off ideas. So you guys can reach out to, to me as well. I'm happy to have a chat anytime. Yeah, just just reach out to as many people as possible. And would you say that that's actually one of your key strengths, the ability to talk to anyone and sell things to anyone? <laughs> I think for sure, life's a big sale, right? Selling to your co-founder that milk is, is important and my co-founder selling to me that yeah we should we should work on this idea you should quit your job um and us selling to our team our team selling to us it's all about convincing people to get on your vision and get onto your team and it is quite much like the sapiens book right we we are able to get to where we are because um, of our organization because we're able to collectively advance our, our kind so if you try to solve the problem on your own it really doesn't make sense it is because humans are able to connect and communicate so well that we have been able to push the frontiers of of technology, of arts, and so on. So would you say for people who are aspiring entrepreneurs, work on your sales and connecting skills? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, communicate with people and talk to people and just, just be open and learn as much as we can. Cool. And any last words you want to share with our audience today before we close off? Maybe, you know, anything that you wish you had known before you embarked on this journey or just any last piece of advice you want to share with them? I wish I had known that it's okay to not have a science background because early days we were kind of like, oh, why was this investor telling us that we should find a Nobel laureate? Do we really need to find a Nobel laureate? It was only after time that uh, we, we recognized the strengths of being being a generalist and being able to connect the dots. It's really about activating the people around you and people further further out as well, your your network, the community, to a common vision. It's about being empathetic and connecting with people. Cool. Well, it was really great talking to you today, Feng Ru, and I am honestly so excited to see where Turtle Tree goes. It was so interesting learning about your journey and to hear, especially I think your last point about being a generalist, because I myself am a generalist. I think that's so comforting to hear. <laughs> um, and to know that, you know, a generalist can actually start such a scientific company and, and be so successful. So yeah, I just wanted to say amazing that you've been able to do such great things. And thanks so much for sharing your story today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
And there you have it, my conversation with Feng Ru. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. I believe Feng Ru was able to build a company steeped in science, despite not having a science background because of a few things. One, her natural curiosity. She was just so fascinated by this space that she would spend hours and hours getting up to speed, reading scientific journals, talking to scientists, learning everything she could about the space. Two, she had no fear of cold emailing and asking dumb questions to people she didn't know. And three would be her sales skills that she honed after years in the corporate world. From going up to Max after his talk to find out more, to selling scientists on the vision to join the company, and getting investors on board, sales skills are critical in the early days of a startup. Four, her execution. She didn't just talk to Max about the cell-based milk idea. She actually followed up with him, did the research, and ultimately acted on it. It wasn't just an idea floating around in her head. She actually took action and took it to the next step. Five, her optimism and idealism. When trying to do something disruptive, a healthy level of optimism is definitely necessary. And lastly, the benefits of being a generalist. I really liked what Fungru said, that her not coming from a science background actually helps to bring a new perspective to the scientists and engage them in a different type of conversation. And oftentimes, this leads to new ideas and helps to connect the dots. So for those of you who are generalists struggling to see your value, a book she highly recommends reading is Range by David Epstein. All right, that's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in a couple weeks for our next episode, where I'll be interviewing the founder of Plynets and hear how Carolyn has modernized her family business and built the cashmere brand Plynets. And if you like this episode, do hit subscribe and share with two friends. As always, you can find me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Bye.